If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I hope you're doing our 100 days through the Bible with us. And this last week, we read a little bit about King David, a little bit about Solomon, and we got all the way to Elijah. This next week, we're going to be focused on the wisdom literature. We're going to read the book of Psalms, two or three days there, and then a little bit in the book of Proverbs. If you have not been doing our 100 days with us, this week would be a great week to start. Uh, Tomorrow, the assignment is Psalm 23. It's probably the shortest assignment in all of the 100 days, but if you'll just slow down and focus on those six verses tomorrow, uh, that'll be a tremendous encouragement to you, I know. And so if you haven't been a part of this, uh, I would encourage you. Uh, There are sign-up sheets, or really you don't need to sign up, but there are um, uh, guides that tell you what to read every day, and they're at tables. You can find them around the church or go to our website, 100 Days Through the Bible. Just two more weeks in the Old Testament, we'll be halfway through, and then we'll begin 50 days in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that next week. Well, today we're going to focus on something that you may have read last Monday, 2 Samuel Uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. This is the familiar story of David and Bathsheba. It's interesting when people think about King David, there are usually two names that come to mind. There are two names that are closely associated with David. One of those is Goliath and the other is Bathsheba, right? And when we were children, we were intrigued with the story of David and Goliath. As adults, We're intrigued with the story of David and Bathsheba. And so in the first uh, historical event, David defeats the giant Goliath. In the second historical account, David is defeated by the giant lust. And it's interesting to see the contrast between these two battles and how David was victorious in the first and he failed in the second. And it's just a a fascinating contrast. Well, today we're going to focus on the second of those two stories, David and Bathsheba. But we're not going to do so probably in the way that you would expect. This is a story that speaks Uh, volumes to the issue of sexual sin. And ordinarily when we preach from this passage, we focus on that subject and rightly so. Uh, But today I want us to look at something else that we can also see here. But we would not be faithful to scripture if we didn't at least pause to talk a little about uh, the main focus of this this event and of of this passage. And that is the the subject of sexual sin. So let me just say a couple of things. This account reminds us that any person, man or woman, any person, no matter how faithful his walk with God might be, can fall to sexual sin if he's not very careful, if she's not very careful how he walks. And David certainly is an example of that. David was a man. You just don't see this this happening. You you just can't really predict this. When you're you're reading through the story of David, you you just don't see that this is going to happen. He is a man who has defeated Goliath. And he is a man who does walk with God, who is writing the Psalms. A man of faith and a man of of courage and, and compassion and passion for the Lord. Yet he was careless one day. And his carelessness put him in a situation where he did something that I'm sure he was surprised that he did. And that same thing can be true of us today. And that's a strong warning. 
that we get from this passage. And another thing I think we see here connected to that is just how slippery is this slope of sin. See, David committed one sin and that, that, that surprised him, that, that surprises us when we read the story, but we see that that one sin quickly turns into another sin and another sin and another sin, and by the time we get to the end of the story, David is up to his eyeballs. David is really over his head in sin, and it happens so quickly, so fast, because sin leads to sin, one sin to another sin, and that ought to really catch our attention when we read this story, especially as it relates to sexual sin. You know, there are a couple of things about sexual sin that are different, I think, from other sins. The, the first thing that is different is just the deceptive nature of sexual sin. Sexual sin deceives us. It tricks us. It confuses us. It sneaks up on us. It, it makes us dumb. Did you know that? And, and so I guess in my ministry, I've talked to hundreds of people about sexual sin. 30 years in the ministry, I've talked to a ton of people and almost to the person, when I sit down and, and somebody's sharing with me about their sexual sin, they, they almost all have a similar story. They say, I never saw it coming. I never imagined that I would do what I'm telling you I did. I never saw it coming. And so I'll ask them to tell me a little bit of their story and they'll walk through how they got to where they currently are as they're sitting there. And, and you know, when they tell their story, I see it coming. I mean, I, I can see, well, you know, it, it shouldn't surprise you at all. You just took the next logical step in this, in this pathway toward the sin. Now, why can I see it in their lives and they cannot see it? Am I smarter than them? No, it's just that sexual sin makes you dumb. It's hard to see. It's hard to predict. Sexual sin in our own life is is exceedingly deceptive. The other thing you see about sexual sin here in this story is, is it is very destructive. It's deceptive more than most sins. It's destructive more than most sins. If I, if I were to just get a cut on my hand or my arm just in my skin and it got infected, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I, I imagine that would that would be a medical issue that the doctors could treat very effectively. They wouldn't panic over that. If you've got some infection and a cut on, on your hand, you, you perhaps need to get some medical attention, but that's not gonna be a hard problem to solve. But you get that same kind of infection in your bones. You get it in your guts. Now, all of a sudden, it could be a life-threatening situation. And so, sexual sin is destructive in that same way that it gets to the to the heart of who we are. It gets in our spirit, it gets in, gets in our soul, and it can cause such destruction in our lives and in our, in our relationships. It's, it's like an infection in your gut. It's, it's, it's like a computer virus in the kernel. It's, it's like the enemy behind the lines. It, it can cause destruction far uh, beyond what we would expect. And so sexual sin, deceptive, and destructive. But, but as I said, I, I want us to look at something else here. Not that sexual sin is not important, and, 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 and I've preached on, on adultery before, and we'll, we'll do that again, perhaps even from the same passage of scripture, but I, I want you to see something very interesting here. What did David do after the sexual sin? What did David do? What was the next step? What, what, did, what, did, he, what did he follow that sin with? And that's very important because 
because I really think that the greatest problem here, not, not to excuse at all his sexual sin, but the greatest problem with the greatest consequences in David's life and in the life of the nation of Israel was not just his sexual sin, but it was what he did next. Now, we, we probably, as a, as a group, pretty familiar with what God's word has to say about the sexual sin, and, and, and we need to know more about that. But I want you to see this morning what happens next. Because what he did next really is the story here. And, and it's, it's a lesson we need to learn, certainly as it relates to sexual sin, but, but really any sin in our lives. This isn't so much... Uh, c connected directly or exclusively with sexual sin, we need to know how David messed up next because in every area of our lives, we're susceptible to do what David did, to make the wrong steps that David took and suffer like David suffered. So let's look at this account, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. Let's just begin with the first five verses. It says, in the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officials and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. And so David sent one to inquire, someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba? daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her, and now she had uh, just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So there's, there's sin number one. Re really, there are probably several sins in there, but but that's, uh, you group them all together, that's sin number one. Uh, David uh, did something he knew he shouldn't have done. Uh, he uh, committed this sexual sin. You could also make a very strong argument that this was sexual harassment. Uh, it was not a term that they would have had in those days, but uh, it is certainly a sin. And David was the king, so there was a difference in uh, power here and authority here. And so uh, we don't know exactly to what extent Bathsheba uh, consented to this, uh, to this illicit relationship. And so there was at least sexual sin and maybe, maybe even beyond that. But now what's David going to do? He's committed the sin or the set of sins. The word has come to him. Bathsheba is pregnant. So what's next? Well, you perhaps know the story. David decided he would cover up the sin. And so he sent to have her husband, uh, Uriah, brought from the front lines uh, in for a meeting with David. And his hope was that uh, Uriah would come and spend some time with his, with his wife. And then nobody would know but David and Bathsheba. And they could just tell everybody that this was Uriah's child. Well, Uriah came home and and he refused to spend time with his wife. He said, my, my fellow soldiers are out in the field and they're separated from their families and so it would not be proper and he, he refused. And so cover up attempt number one failed. And then David said, well, I'll, I'll try something else. And so he, he pulls Uriah in and he, he gets Uriah drunk, inebriated. And so he thinks now Uriah won't be so strong and won't have such character, but Uriah did. And Uriah still refused to go and spend time with his wife. And so 
cover-up attempt number two failed. And so then he decided that he would uh, strategically arrange for Uriah to be killed in battle. And, and again, the only people that know are David and Bathsheba and, you know, maybe some servants perhaps, but they could be dealt with. And, and so if, if I could just kill Uriah, now I've covered it up. Nobody will know if this is my child or Uriah's child. Everybody will assume that it was Uriah's child and it's, it's all taken care of. And so he has, he has her husband killed. So that was cover up to tempt number three, but even that didn't work because there was a man of God there called Nathan, named Nathan, and Nathan uh, got the word from the Lord what David had done, and Nathan confronts David and said, David, I know what you did, and I know how you tried cover up to tempt number one, it didn't work. Cover up to tempt number two, it didn't work. Cover up to tempt number three, you thought it worked, but it didn't. I'm here to tell you it didn't because I know, and I'm about to tell everybody. In fact, if you'll turn to Verse, well, chapter 12, let's begin reading in verse 9. This is David's meeting with Nathan, the prophet. Nathan is speaking, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. And here are the consequences. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me. And look, the wife of Uriah the Hittite took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says in verse 11. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. And I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. So Nathan said, cover up attempt number three. That didn't work either. And now you're about to face the consequences. Now, I want to stop there and, and, and teach you some things that we can learn from the cover up. But let me just say that the follow-up passage, if you just want to continue to study, the follow-up passage is Psalm 51. You might just write that down. In fact, that's going to be your assigned reading on Tuesday. There's a little misprint in the, in the reading assignment, but uh, it's, it's Psalm 51 on Tuesday, the first or all 19 verses, I think, of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the prayer that David prays after he meets with Nathan. Wouldn't you like to know what David said to God after this? Well, you can know Psalm 51, and it, um, it's a valuable valuable chapter. But so here's the question. Why in the world did David work so hard to cover up his sin instead of simply confessing? Why didn't David, when he got word that, uh, that Bathsheba was pregnant or even before then, but especially then when he got word that Bathsheba was pregnant, why didn't he seek forgiveness? Why didn't he confess? Why didn't he uh, call in Uriah and say, Uriah, I have done you wrong. I have sinned against you. Why didn't he call the, the priests together? Why didn't he call Nathan the prophet and say, I must go before the Lord and confess my sin? Why did he cover it up? 
That's the $64,000 question. Because you and I, we're covering up our sins. We sin, we have secrets, there are things that go on, and we cover them up. And we do so for the same reason that David did. And we suffer like David suffered. We must not cover our sins. And in this account, we see why David did it, and we learn why we do it, and we can, we can choose a better path. It's the cover-up, more so than even the sin that often brings us down. Uh, if you don't believe that, ask Martha Stewart, right? Do you know her story? She went to jail, not because of what she was accused of doing to begin with, but because of what? The cover-up. Ask Richard Nixon if the cover-up won't get you. Ask King David. It was the cover-up that brought him to his knees. And in our lives, certainly the sin is serious, but it's the cover-up, it's the cover-up that we must avoid. So why did David cover up his sins? Let me show you six reasons. We're going to go through these pretty quickly, but six important reasons. These will overlap a little bit. Um, I started to make them three reasons, but uh, I just like to talk a long time, so I made it six. Number one. We cover up our sin, and David covered up his sin because we think we're smart enough to conceal it. David thought he was smart. I've got a plan, David must have said to himself. I know I'll go get Uriah. He'll come in. Nobody will ever know. And when that didn't work, well, I've got a plan B. When that didn't work, I've got a plan C. David thought he was pretty smart. And, and here's the problem. We think we're pretty smart too. But here's the real problem. We're no smarter than David was. And, and we think we can hide our sins. But know this, it's not up to me and you when our sins are exposed. It's up to the Lord. And your sin and my sin, just like David's sin, will be exposed on the day God chooses. And it doesn't matter how crafty you think you are. It doesn't matter how careful I think I am. My sins and your sins will be exposed when God chooses to expose those sins. Luke chapter 12 says, Jesus says, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have worshiped in, in an ear in private rooms, whispered in an ear in private rooms, will be proclaimed from the housetops. See, God chooses when, when sin will be exposed. Uh, th th there's an interesting story in... Um, that's sort of connected. In my mind, it's connected. I, I want to tell you the story. It's about King Ahab. Do you know the story of the death of King Ahab? Second Kings, oh, I don't remember. Second Kings 22 is the story. First Kings 22. The story of the death of King Ahab. So King Ahab, king of Israel, this was when the kingdom was divided. So there was Israel and Judah. So he's one of the two kings of what we think about as Israel. And he was a wicked man and his number was up. God had said, that's enough. And, and so they were about to go into battle against an enemy. And I honestly don't recall who the enemy was, but they're going to battle against an enemy. You can read in 1 Kings 22. And Ahab, he's worried he's gonna die. He's worried that this, this is it. So he has a plan. He's, he first decides when we go into battle, and usually the kings would lead the way into battle. He, he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in the back of the, of the battle. Because the guy in the back, he's fine, right? 
He just has to hand Gatorade to the guys in the front, but he's fine. He's in the back. He said, and then further, I'm not going to dress like the king because the enemy might be looking to kill the king. And I don't want anybody to know. So I'm just going to dress like a regular soldier. And then strategy number three, he said, just in case under my regular soldier clothes, I'm going to put my kingly armor. And he had the best armor of anybody in the world. This was an armor that was almost impervious. And so he had taken all the precautions. But then you get to 1 Kings 22, 34. Listen to this verse. A man from the enemy side drew his bow and without taking special aim, shot his arrow in the air. It came down, struck the king of Israel through the joints of his armor, and he died. I mean, what bad luck, right? I mean, he did everything. He had this elaborate plan, and, and somehow there was a little crease in his armor, and a random arrow caught this, what would have seemed to others as a random soldier in the perfect spot, and, and the king died. What do we learn from that? Our craftiness, our resourcefulness, our intelligence does not negate God's calendar. And listen, and the Lord has used this truth to bring me to my knees a couple of times in my life. But if, if there's sin in your life that has not been exposed, it's only because God in his mercy has given you another day to confess and repent. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're careful. It's because the mercy of God has given you another day to confess and repent. We need to take that opportunity. We need to take God up on his mercy. That's why our sin hasn't been exposed. We we hide our sin because we think we're smart enough to conceal it, but we are not. I um, heard a story that I, it was told to me as a true story, and so I, I believe this to be true. It'll sound far-fetched, but no more far-fetched than the Second Kings 22 Ahab killing. Uh, it was about a businessman. He, he had a practice, a sinful practice of looking at pornography in his office. But he was careful. He knew how to delete his internet history. He always kept his door closed and nobody knew. Uh, but one day, as, as the story goes, he was viewing stuff he shouldn't have been viewing and, and he had coffee cup in his hand. He drops the coffee cup into his keyboard. And you know, you can imagine, you know, you're frantically trying to clean it up and wipe it down. And somehow in all of that, and, 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 and as it was told to me, they don't know if it was the, it was the, impact of the coffee cup or it was, you know, the wiping with a cloth very quickly to clean the keyboard, but somehow control P enter. Those three buttons were pressed. Now, if you don't know what that does, uh, it prints whatever's on your screen to whatever is your default printer, which for him was the office printer down the hallway which put across the top of the printouts whose computer it came from and he lost his job, he lost his uh, reputation, he lost his testimony, and he, he lost much of his marriage. 
You see, we don't choose when sin is exposed. And I'm not just talking about sexual sin. God chooses. And if our sin hadn't been exposed, that's what you call the mercy of God, not the ingenuity of, of man. Now, the second reason why we cover up sin is we think concealed sin will just eventually go away. We think that time is the best atonement for sin. That, that if we just can get past it, you know, it's been six months or six years, so I'm fine now. Listen, time does not cover up sin. It does not, um, it does not cancel out sin, and it does not remove the necessity for confession. If time by itself could, could cover up sin, then Jesus would not have needed to die on the cross for us. God could have just put Jesus in time out for a thousand years, right? I mean, Jesus could have said, well, I'm just going to serve some time to pay the penalty for our sins. But time doesn't, doesn't pay penalty. It, it, it doesn't pay even a little bit of the penalty for sin. Don't think that if you can just wait out the clock, then, then there's no need to confess your sins. No, confession is a command of God, and we can't wait that out. We often refuse to confess because we think time will conceal uh, our, our sin. The, the third reason we conceal sin is we think often that there are no consequences to unknown sins. As long as nobody knows then there are no consequences. And I think the reason we think this is because we can think of some consequences to confessed sins, right? So if I tell my boss about some sin in the workplace, there might be consequences. If I tell my, my wife, if I tell my husband, if I tell my parents, if I tell my friends, if I, I, we can think of some consequences that come from confession, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So we, we think of those consequences and, and that I think leads us wrongly to, to believe that then as long as it's not confessed, there are no consequences. And that's just not true. There are always consequences to unconfessed sin. And just because you cannot draw a clear line and connect the frustrations of your life to unconfessed sin does not mean that there is not such a line. It just means you don't know how to draw it. And just because you can't see how your uh, depression or your relationship problems or your frustration or your uh, stress or, or, or your whatever, just because you can't see how that's connected to unconfessed sin doesn't mean it's not. There are uh, consequences even to unknown sins when they are not confessed. And, and think about it this way. Who is the author of the consequences in our lives? It's God. And God does know. I mean, I may not know. Your, your husband may not know. Your parents may not know. Your friends may not know. But God knows. And there certainly are consequences to unknown sins. Number four, we often cover up our sins because we think man's judgment for sin is to be feared above God's judgment for sin. Why didn't David just fess up? Well, I think David probably counted the cost. Now, his, his, his arithmetic was wrong, but David thought, you know, if I confess, then first of all, Uriah is going to be really mad. And uh, I'm going to lose some of the favor as a king. I won't, be, I won't have the mantle of authority that I have. And, and, and if I confess, there might be this problem and this problem. And what will my mama say? And, 
And, and he figured, you know, if I confess, all these things are going to happen. And those things are bigger than what's going to happen if I don't confess. If I don't confess. And so he thought that man's judgment was more serious, more important to him than God's judgment. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body, but who are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, what does that mean? It is a reminder that the person's judgment that ought to be most important to us is God's judgment. Let people think what people are going to think. Let us be right with God. Let, if, if people will think less of you, then let people think less of you. In the end of the day, it's God's judgment that counts. God's judgment that counts. Well, the next one is very similar. Number five, we think the price of confession is greater than the price of concealing. Oh, pastor, if I were to, if I were to tell my wife, you just don't know what it would be like at my house. If I were to, if I were to tell uh, my employer, you just don't know what kind of crisis that would create. Well, that's the fallacy. We think the price of confessing, and, and there often is a price to confessing. We think that is greater than the price of concealing, but it never is. It's sort of a, a short-term, long-term thing, right? So uh, th there, there is more short-term pain, perhaps, in confessing, but there is more long-term pain in concealing. We, in life, oftentimes, we have to make a decision. You know, if you're going to, uh, you, you can go and buy a car, and it costs, I don't know, however much cars cost. Or you could just go down here to Enterprise and rent a car by the day for the rest of your life. <laughs> now, uh, it would be a lot cheaper in the short run just to rent that car every day, right? Was it 50 bucks a day or something? But in the long term, it's better just to go buy you a car. Now, now so when it comes to, comes to weighing what is the greater price, yeah, it may hurt more to confess if you just measure in the next three weeks. But long term, it always costs more to conceal. Now, we saw some of that in 2 Samuel 12 because Nathan went through a list of things that he was prophesying these things will happen. He was speaking for the Lord, say, David, these things are going to happen. And, and none of them are good. But let me look back and show you specifically what did happen. Nathan said this would happen. Well, what really did happen? Well, Bathsheba's first son died. That's number one. And then Amnon, one of the sons of David, rapes Tamar, one of the daughters of David. Absalom, another son of David, murders Amnon. And then Absalom is killed in battle. Abinadab, uh, one of the sons of David, is murdered by Solomon, another son of David. I mean, you thought your family was uh, <laughs> um, troubled. Uh, Absalom, a son of David, takes David's wives away from him and makes them his wives with all the things that go along with that that I won't say right now. Um, Psalm 32.3 says that David suffered depression and fatigue as a direct result of his unconfessed sin. It also says in Psalm 32.4 that he, because of his 
unconfessed sin lost his strength and his vitality. Psalm 51, 12 says, because of his unconfessed sin, he lost his joy. Uh, Psalm 51, 14 and 15 say, because of his unconfessed sin, he lost at least temporarily his ability to worship God. And so the consequences, the price of concealing sin, always greater than the price of confession. And then number six, we think relationships, relationships, pardon me, can be built stronger on a lie than on the truth. We wouldn't say it that way, uh, but I um, can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat and talked with people and they said, well, you know, pastor, I'm confessing to you, but I'm never going to tell my husband. I'm never going to tell my wife because, you know, I, I just, I, I care so much about our relationship. I, I don't want to put it in jeopardy. But friends, you can't build a relationship on, on a lie. Uh, relationships uh, are built on intimacy. Now, this is not the etymology of the word intimacy, but think about this. Intimacy, into you I see. Intimacy, see the connection? In, into you I see intimacy. I, intimacy means I can see into you and I know you and you're honest with me. And you can see into me intimacy. You, and, and you know me and, and there's honesty. And if there's no honesty, there's no intimacy. You may or may not know that. It may take it may take two years or 20 years for you to discover it, but if there's no honesty, there's no intimacy. Now, let me just say some hard words. Some people, there's some things you need to confess. And you've been sitting on them and sitting on them. And like David, you thought the pain of confession would be worse than the pain of concealing. You thought time would make it all go away. You thought it's better to build the relationship on a lie than, than risk it with the truth. And now, I'm telling you as your pastor, it's time to sit down this week and share something. It may be very hard to share, but will be the beginning of God working in your life like you've never seen him work before. How do you know if you should share? This is one of those questions that pastors get asked often. How, how do you know? Pastor, how do I know I ought to go and confess? And so I've written some guidelines, and I, I, there was no room in the worship bulletin uh, for these. If you're just interested in these, then uh, send me an email this week, and we'll send this out to you. But, so it may be too much to write down. But let me just go through these six quick guidelines. Number one, err on the side of confessing too often. If you're wondering whether or not you ought to go and confess that sin to whomever, whatever kind of sin, listen, if you're thinking about it, then you should. Uh, n n nobody's ever gotten in trouble because they were more honest than they should have been. <laughs> Uh, confess. If you can't figure it out, confess. Secondly, if, if the guilt of the sin comes to your mind periodically, if you're reminded about the sin, I don't care if it was 1400 years ago, if it's coming up in your mind, that means you've not properly dealt with it. You need to deal with it. You need to deal with it. If, if there are questions, suspicions, confusions on the part of the person you've sinned against, then you need to confess. If there are ongoing problems in a relationship, uh, whether they seem connected to the sin or not, you need to confess. If because of your concealment, you have presented yourself as someone that you are not, then you should confess. And then the final is, the more important the relationship is, the more urgent it is that you confess. And so if you uh, spoke hastily uh, to the cashier at the drugstore four and a half weeks ago, 
I don't know that you need to call the manager and go over the timesheets and try to figure out who was on which register and track that person down and confess. They don't care. They don't remember who you are. People are unkind to them like 20 times an hour. Say, that's not an important relationship. Uh, but if it's, your, if it's your husband, you need to confess. If it's your ex-wife, you need to confess. If it's your children, if it's your employer, you need, you need to confess. So I, I know that this is, uh, this is a hard message, hard message to study and prepare for, pray through, uh, hard message to preach. I know it's a hard message to hear, to listen to. If we take it seriously, it's a hard message. But listen, I, I, I think a lot of us, we're, we're Davids. We're, we're Davids and we're caught right, right there after the sin, but before the cover-up. And we got a choice to make. What's going to be your choice? See, David's choice determined the course of the rest of his life and the rest of his family's life. What are you and I going to do? We were having our prayer time. By the way, we meet here on 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You want to come and we just pray. We don't pray a long time, but we, we pray for all the people who are coming today and for the service, the choir, the s- sermon. And, We were praying, and and one of the gentlemen who was praying this morning quoted a verse. And when he did, I thought, "That's Lord, that's exactly what I needed to hear to to close this message." We, and I want to share it with you. But but first, let me give you some context. We we come to the end of uh, or or end of the story, Second Samuel twelve. Nathan Nathan speaks some hard words. He says, and I'll read it again, David. The Lord says this, I'm going to bring disaster on you and your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight and God pronounces his judgment. But I've told you as we've gone through this that in every one of these stories you see Jesus. There's some pointer to Jesus and this is it. You see, that's what David heard from Nathan. David, you messed up and you concealed and now the consequences are coming. Here's the good news. If we turn over Matthew chapter 11, here's what Jesus says. You've got a sin you need to confess, your heart heavy right now. Listen to what Jesus says. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When Jesus says weary and burdened, he's not talking about you're tired from a hard day's work. He doesn't mean your back is sore, your legs are worn out, you need to sit down. He's not talking about you're physically tired. When Jesus says the weary and the burdened, he's talking about you're tired of your sin. You're tired of dealing with the, with the guilt. You're, you're tired of, of thinking how you have sinned against somebody and what are the consequences going to be? And I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I failed to do that. Jesus says, and with that burden, just come to me and surrender and confess to me and to those you've sinned against. And he said, I will give you rest. You see, David 
he, he met with Nathan. He didn't get any rest. And the rest of David's life is upside down. Imagine one kid killing another one and raping. And I mean, just horrible. All the stuff that Nathan said would happen. But it's a different path for us. Jesus, because he's paid the penalty for our sins, he says, it's covered. It's taken care of. Come to me. Confess to me. And confess to others. And I will give you rest. I want to share just one more verse. James 5, half-brother of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you will be healed. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father, I pray that not a person here will leave with unconfessed sin in their lives, that we will confess that sin to you and that we will, where it is appropriate, and it often is, we'll confess that sin to others. Well, I, I, know, of, I know of people well, Father, I know there are many people who are living a lie, like David was living a lie. And they think that they're smart enough and careful enough that that arrow will never pierce their armor. But remind them, as you have reminded me more than once in my life, that the only reason my sin is not exposed is because you're in your mercy, you've given me a chance to confess. And may we hear the clarion call of Jesus that says, come to me and I will give you rest. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together so we respond to the Lord.